Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, episode number 25. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. Today's episode of Hacker History is part one of a two-part mini-series on the greatest cyber attack ever conceived, Stuxnet. One could reasonably argue that Stuxnet wasn't merely the greatest cyber attack of all time. It was the greatest cyber attack ever conceived. Like, as far as we're aware, nobody has pulled off a greater attack, nor even come up with an idea for one that equals it, even in the decade and a half since Israel and the United States unleashed it unto the world. This is a question that, uh, you know, people have been asking themselves since 2010 when Stuxnet was discovered, because we initially thought after that discovery that it was going to open the door to a lot of copycat attacks. Kim Zetter, author of Countdown to Zero Day, Stuxnet and the launch of the world's first digital weapon. She'll be providing insights throughout our story, though the opinions stated in my narration aren't necessarily shared by her. I felt this important to say since she has never made the claim that Stuxnet was a failure. And what we've seen is that that hasn't been the case. We've seen some exploration by Russia, of course, with the WannaCry, North Korea, uh, NotPetya was Russia. But those were designed, those were very noisy attacks. They weren't designed to be stealth. They weren't all that impressive in the way that they were conducted. Stuxnet was unprecedented incomparable, almost unbelievable in its time. You can look back and see it in what people were saying in 2010-2011. Is Stuxnet the best malware ever? asks a journalist for Computer World. It's amazing, really, a semantic manager tells him. I'd call it groundbreaking, says a Kaspersky researcher. Ralph Langner, one of the primary players involved in reverse engineering the code, referred to it in a TED Talk as, quote, rocket science, it's way above everything that we have ever seen before, end quote. And yet, in spite of all that, Stuxnet, somehow, it failed. What's often lost in the discussions about how sophisticated it was, or the damage it caused, is that the hackers, the U.S. and Israeli intelligence agencies who hatched the plan, didn't seem to have achieved their ultimate goal. In fact, the entire affair may have been counterproductive, empowering their victim as much or more than they hurt them. In the following two podcast episodes, we'll unpack the greatest cyber campaign ever conceived and why it failed. The answer has to do with one fact over all else, that Stuxnet wasn't simply one thing. There were, in fact, two Stuxnets. The Natanz nuclear facility is out in the middle of an empty desert, cradled by mountains, at the center of Iran, 200 miles south of Tehran, a three-hour drive or so. It's protected by two-and-a-half-meter-thick concrete walls, and those walls are protected by yet a second layer of concrete wall. The roof, too, is made of reinforced concrete and covered by 22 meters of earth. The 100,000-square-foot facility is surrounded by tall fencing with guard towers and anti-aircraft guns at regular intervals. All that is a long way of saying, Natanz is the kind of place specially designed to make sure nothing unwanted gets in or out. An enemy plane, an explosion, 
an unexamined centrifuge or foreign computer. How then did hackers manage to get software into this fortress? Just about every malware that's ever been created was delivered to its target over the internet. For this very reason, the facility that Stuxnet targeted was expressly designed without an internet connection. The term for this is air gap, where the wider web and a given network are separated by not just a firewall or one-way device, but actual physical space. No wires connect the two. It was targeting systems that weren't connected to the internet. So that had to be introduced into machine initially via a USB stick with someone having physical access to a computer. According to anonymous NSA sources, whose testimony was dramatized in the Alex Gibney documentary, Zero Days, quote, The first time we introduced the code into Natanz, we used human assets, maybe CIA, more likely Mossad, end quote. The mission to get malware into Natanz was so highly classified that even these NSA employees, the very people responsible for building the Stuxnet malware, admitted that, quote, our team was kept in the dark about the tradecraft. It wasn't until a decade after the fact that the world finally learned the truth. And in my reporting, I revealed later that the U.S. and Israel had used a mole, a Dutch mole, someone in Iran who was working for Dutch intelligence. According to anonymous sources who spoke to Kim in 2019, the CIA and Mossad, Israel's CIA, requested help from the Dutch General Intelligence and Security Service, or AIVD, in 2004. It culminated three years later when a Dutch agent representing a fake company showed up to the Natanz plant. And that person was able to obtain access to the facility in Iran, posing as an engineer, a contractor. And so they were able to deliver directly that first version of Stuxnet physically using a USB stick to some system at that facility. Having been planted on a computer at the facility, the malware got to work. Once it was on a first system, though, it could then spread automatically to any other system that was connected on a network to that system, the first system that's not connected to the internet. Stuxnet was a worm like the worms you know of, that spread between internet computers. But this one needed only to operate within a single network. And that worm component exploited a Microsoft vulnerability in Windows. A zero day. A yet unknown vulnerability that allowed it to copy itself automatically from one machine to another, unabated, with no human input necessary. Unlike most worms, though, it wasn't designed to spread to as many computers as possible. Rather, it self-copied as much as it had to until it reached an extremely specific target. In any given year, miners worldwide extract about 45 to 65,000 tons of uranium from the Earth. Nearly half from Kazakhstan, but that's besides the point. In any given sampling of uranium, approximately 99.3% will be isotope U-238, one of the three isotopes a mineral comes in. Almost none of it will be U-234, and only around 0.7% is U-235. At the core of nuclear energy is the fission process, which cannot be achieved with U-238. 
In order to produce nuclear power, then, scientists have to phase out 99.3% U-238 and increase the levels of 235 in whatever they're using. The more 235 relative to 238, the more powerful the resulting fission will be. Nuclear power, for example, requires a 3-5% ratio of U-235. Nuclear weapons might utilize upwards of 90% U-235. To filter out 238 from mined uranium, scientists perform enrichment. In broad terms, it involves converting uranium into a gaseous state, then piping the gas into centrifuges. And these centrifuges spin at supersonic speed to separate the isotopes that are needed for nuclear fission from the isotopes that aren't needed. At these extreme speeds, the slightly heavier U-238 atoms, with 92 protons and 146 neutrons each, separate from U-235 with their 92 protons, but only 143 neutrons. The U-238 along the outer rim of the centrifuge gets weaned out. And those enriched isotopes then, the enriched uranium with those isotopes, is then sort of pumped out or scraped out of the centrifuge and sent into a second set of centrifuges where it's further enriched. It's like panning for gold. 235 becomes further and further isolated as the enrichment gas moves from one centrifuge to the next, while the 238 is left over as waste. That's enrichment in a nutshell. The goal of Stuxnet was to sabotage this process, slow it down so that Iran wouldn't be able to enrich uranium fast enough to build a nuclear weapon. To do this, the malware set a laser target for Siemens S7 PLCs, chunky, gray machines clearly not designed with aesthetic appeal in mind. The S7 is a PLC, a programmable logic controller, whose job is to control an industrial process like an assembly line, power station, or in this case, centrifuge. So they picked a, a file in the normal Siemens code, and they created their own file almost you know, line for line, except for the malicious parts of it. They chose a software for controlling various industrial processes called Step 7. Their malicious Step 7 code was so like-for-like like to the original that even the PLC itself couldn't tell the difference. And so this was designed to sit on a system without being detected, without being considered anomalous at all. And there it would sit quietly for a number of days, watching and learning about the environment of that system, recording the normal activities of that environment, and then, once it had recorded enough of that, it would then launch its sabotage. The attackers possessed total control over the software operating centrifuges at Natanz, even as much as the operators at the actual facility. At this point, they could have done anything. What Stuxnet did was it closed the exit valves on the centrifuges so that the gas could pour into the centrifuges, but it couldn't get out. And so as gas continues to pour and pour and pour into the centrifuges, the pressure inside the centrifuge increases. And when the pressure inside a centrifuge increases, that gas that has been separated now starts to solidify. And it starts to cause problems in the balance of the centrifuge. An imbalanced centrifuge is a recipe for disaster. We'll talk about it more later, but for now, 
Just think about what happens when any fast-moving object, an athlete, a race car, an airplane, loses its balance. Not good. An imbalanced centrifuge could lead to physical damage to the machine, or much worse. But here was where the real genius of the entire plot came into play. So what Stuxnet would do is it would sit on the centrifuge and close the valves for a certain number of hours or until the pressure inside the centrifuge increased five times what was normal. Putting the centrifuges on a crash course for destruction. And then it would open the valves again. And the effect that this had was in some cases it would cause the centrifuges to become imbalanced, but it would also sabotage the enrichment process because the Iranians would expect at the end of that process to get uranium hexafluoride gas that was enriched to a certain level. But what was happening was the enrichment wasn't happening. And so they were wasting gas and they were not producing the enrichment that they needed. If everything blew up, it would have been really obvious really quickly that something was really wrong. Instead, the malware sabotaged the enrichment process with a light touch, slowly poisoning its victim over time. And during this process, the Iranians, of course, would have been seeing what was happening, right? They would have seen that the centrifuges weren't working. They would have seen that there was something happening with the gas. So, I mean, that seems obvious on its face, but Stuxnet wasn't affecting every centrifuge in the facility. It was affecting only certain centrifuges and only at certain times. Like a game of centrifuge whack-a-mole, there seemed no rhyme or reason to why one went down where another did not, only to recover in time for a third to go out. It would conduct the sabotage and then the centrifuges would go back to normal after a certain period of time. So this would have left the Iranian technicians perplexed, confused what's happening. They would have known that there was problems with the centrifuges, there was problems with the gas, but they wouldn't have known the cause. At a certain point, the Natanz technicians had to do something. They were removing centrifuges uh, that they thought were causing problems. If they decided that the centrifuges weren't the problem and they thought maybe the code inside the industrial control systems were the problem. Anticipating that the technicians would suspect a problem in the code, the hackers developed a series of advanced stealth mechanisms to ensure that, no matter what, the malware remained hidden away. If they started to examine that code, Stuxnet was actually looking out for that. It was looking for any commands that would come to the industrial control system saying, show us your code blocks, show us the code that you have installed on you. And if Stuxnet saw a command like that, It would intercept the code blocks going back to the engineer and scrub all of its malicious code from those code blocks and serve up to the engineers only sanitized versions of the code. So the Iranian engineers would look at the code. They would say, well, there doesn't seem to be any problem with the code. This must not be the problem. What do you do when a computer is acting up, but you're not sure why? You could turn it off and on again, see if that works. At worst, maybe a factory reset. If they decided that even though they couldn't see a problem with the code, they just were going to wipe the industrial control systems clean and start over with new code. The years of preparation, 
coding, and spying would have been wasted if the engineers at the facility could simply wipe the malware from their network. To account for that, Stuxnet operated at the root level, the lowest possible rung of a computer, where only the most fundamental, untouchable processes occur. It was deep enough in the system it wouldn't be wiped. Stuxnet would sit on the system and it would be watching for any new code blocks to be introduced into the industrial control system. And if it saw new code blocks coming, it would grab those code blocks, re-inject its malicious code into those code blocks, and then um, install those code blocks on the industrial control system. So this is how Stuxnet remained persistent over time and how it avoided uh, detection by the engineers. Stuxnet toyed with Iran's nuclear program for two years, from 2007 to 2009. Effective, imperceptible, inescapable, it was the perfect cyber attack. But times were changing. At that point, Iran was ramping up heavily that enrichment program, and there was probably a lot of pressure from Israel in particular to do a more aggressive attack. The malware could only do so much damage without being detectable. And Iran's nuclear program was growing faster than Stuxnet was stunting it. According to the NSA sources who spoke to Gibney, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu put increasing pressure on Mir Dagan, the head of Mossad, to produce results. Meanwhile, America was stalled. We had a new election. We elected a new president. And Stuxnet was a covert operation, and a covert operation has to be authorized by a sitting president. But in this case, we had a sitting president who was leaving, in this case, President Bush. And we had a new president coming in, President Obama. And so the covert operation had to be reauthorized by Obama. And that occurred in 2009 when he met with Bush in the White House to do the handoff. And Bush explained to him what was going on in the Iranian program and urged him to uh, reauthorize it. Obama entered office under immense pressure from just about every direction, from Republicans amid crashing housing and stock markets with problems to deal with across the Middle East and much more. Kim wrote in her book how, quote, Obama already faced a lot of pressure on multiple fronts. Little progress had been made with Iran via diplomatic channels, and sanctions weren't having much of their desired effect either. And there was concern that the Israelis might take matters into their own hands if the United States didn't show results soon. For these and other reasons, Obama decided not only to reauthorize the digital sabotage program, but to accelerate it. It was in this environment that he gave the green light for a new, more aggressive version of Stuxnet to launch. A second Stuxnet, a 2.0. We were furious, the NSA coders recalled. The Israelis took our code for the delivery system and changed it. Then, on their own, without our agreement, they just fucking launched it. Because they were in a hurry, they opened Pandora's box. And that concludes part one of this two-part mini-series on Stuxnet. We will be back near the end of April with part two and hope you will tune in for the conclusion. This episode was written by the talented Nathaniel Nelson, narrated by me, Christopher Luft, and produced by the team at Lima Charlie. And I want to give a heartfelt thank you to Kim Zetter for sharing her expertise with us. It's an honor. 
If you have any feedback or ideas for future stories, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.